0: The eyes to the left.
1: Welcome to this special two-part podcast of Eyes to the Left: The Climate Crisis Panel. In part two, our climate crisis panel of scientists and activists take questions from the audience and Daily Mirror readers, and it's time for each of them to reveal their one climate crisis demand. Okay, let's open to the floor. Who's got a question? There's a gentleman here. Direct it, if you will. Other than that, we'll pass it around. Just for for everyone.
0: Um, My name is Ivan D'Ambrose. I work in sustainability. Um, Thank you very much for for your comments. Um, But everything you're saying is very much on the tragedy of the effects of climate change, and I'm not denying it, and punishment that will come from actions that we have to take. Essentially, you are just presenting it as uh, something extremely bad that is going to happen, And the fact that in the end I would be punished because I would have to reduce my flights, I would have to eat less meat and so on. From a marketing point of view, I believe that working in sustainability, we should really try to represent it. Instead of saying tragedy, 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 let's try to shift it in a way of we can do better, which is going to be good for everyone. Instead of talking about punishment, 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 we try new ways that, for example, will improve your fitness. So whatever we are saying is correct, but the way we are presenting it will just create denial.
2: Yeah, I just want to say thank you for raising that. I couldn't agree more. And I think what we've been doing here, I think, is 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 making sure that people know the truth in order for there to be impetus to act. But I couldn't agree more that actually what we're moving towards is, I think, on all levels, a far better, far happier and far healthier society. I mean, if you look at it, loneliness is one of the biggest problems that we have in uh, Western society today. Loneliness, stress, anxiety. Um, suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 40. There are so much mental health challenges and a lot of that has been put down to these fragmented, isolated lifestyles that we live in. We've lost communities. Uh, we've lost the community vibe. And actually you're absolutely right. I think what we really need to be presenting is what a beautiful society we could be moving towards if we actually become um, different, sustainable in a different way. We create communities that are not so isolated and fragmented, which necessarily is going to be the case if we travel less or if we rely less on certain technologies. But actually, what would a greener future look like? How beautiful could that be? And how much more, love and connection and relationship could there be in that society and how much our mental health as a result could be so much more positive that's my take on that
3: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, in conservation, we start to have conservation psychologists because it has been completely acknowledged that this is not systematically the right people. They are not well equipped to actually help change because how you get people to change has nothing to do with bombarding them with fact and and, uh, punishment and stuff, etc. I think that's a nice transition that we see, at least in conservation and hopefully in a lot of different sciences, as to take on board experts in how to, to, to create change, to motivate people to change, to see the opportunity instead of seeing the tragedy. And that's an interdisciplinary stuff, that, which is why I really think that this is about talking together because we need more marketing experts <laughs> in climate change. We need more conservation psychologists. We need more people that have expertise to slowly bring everyone together to that change so that people feel empowered and want to change.
1: New healthcare niche there then, climate psychologist. Opportunity,
4: I just oh, Thank you for your question. I think the, thinking of it from the perspective of uh, land use, so having in my dim distant past kind of managed uh, a farm, I think when I look at those figures in terms of 11% or 27% land use change they don't frighten me. I think actually you look at things like integrating agroforestry into the way that we produce our food, food productivity goes up. Our ability to manage the land better is a real opportunity, and I think I agree with you. I think we have to be portraying solutions, and we we have to be portraying hope. And I think we have those solutions in a lot of the cases. We have we are up against some uh, those who would wish to market uh, the the opposite view, and the kind of despair or the uh, the fact that those solutions won't make make a big enough difference. I kind of challenge them on that. I think actually shifting land use which makes better use of that land, which captures more carbon, produces more food, gets better animal welfare, and all of those various other things I've mentioned previously, I think, is a realistic solution, both in the UK, for which we can then show leadership at a, at a, on a global scale, but also then when you take it to places where things like trees are increasing the productive capacity uh, in Africa for people to be able to feed themselves. Fundamentally, they are solutions that we have in our back pocket And my biggest frustration is if somebody had come to me yesterday and said, I've invented this thing that does all of these things and it's a tree and nobody's ever heard of it, people would be falling over themselves to invest in something which was a massive climate change success. And unfortunately, we've had it for far too long and people have lost sight of the value that it gives us.
1: Okay, next question. Okay, gentlemen, over here.
5: Uh, Hi, how, Jen? Uh, Fergal McEntee from, actually, Extinction Rebellion Engineers. Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and my girlfriend's in the Woodland Trust, um, and uh, I'm, I'm a renewable engineer and uh, have been for a long time, and I had to stop working in this country because the oil and gas industry in this country gets uh, huge subsidies, and it gets more subsidies than the renewables, and it's just such an unfair playing field that we got, and uh, Oil and gas is booming. The amount of money that they're investing, inward investing in, in oil technology is, is unbelievable. And we're in this climate crisis at the moment. And the scale of engineering solutions that we need to do to retrofit like over 20 million properties in this country is huge. We need to rip up all the roads. We need to put in district heating systems. We need to put in heat pumps. And then when it comes to carbon capture and storage, we've got technology that doesn't even exist. And you look at it from an engineering point of view and... Uh, you know, we need to be having these conversations now. We're up against the likes so of the the BBC, who don't even properly report what's actually going on. So we need to we need to try and clean up the UK. And I suppose it's to Doug and and areas of ep- uh, expertise in this. But like, uh, you know, we we need help to actually get this done.
1: Doug, tell us about the scale of those. Do you want to start? Right? Yeah, okay. well, tell I us about the scale finish. of those subsidies. Let's put that in some sort of context, then.
6: Well, we're talking about billions, and this is tens of billions. And this has been reported repeatedly by the uh, International Energy Authority, and, and, and internationally, governments have pledged to reduce these, these uh, subsidies, but failed to do so largely. But this gets back to an earlier question where i want to add on to what emily was saying whereas chris you asked this is going to cost a lot of money isn't it and emily rightfully said well the costs of climate change far outweigh anything you might spend here but we're wasting money on the wrong things. so you're right oil and gas subsidies are one example of that we're spending 90 billion pounds on hs2 a train line that in its own figures show we won't won't save any carbon dioxide the government's spending money on the biggest roads building program uh, across the country, including, for example, bypassing Arundel, um, going through ancient woodlands, the same as HS2 is going through as well. And if you switch some of that money into doing the right things, you'd have an enormous impact straight away. That kind of expenditure on HS2 and on, on roads, if that went into public transport uh, and better cycling, segregated cycling ways, we'd have the best public transport system in the world and we'd be able to give free bus travel to everybody. So sometimes the money, money does make the world go round and pointing it in the right direction. It's not necessarily about saying you need to tax people loads more. We just need to stop spending money on the wrong things and start spending them on the right
1: things. Doug, Uh, Doug, can you tell me, because I genuinely don't understand, why one of the most lucrative and profitable industries in the world, i.e. the petrochemical industries, needs subsidy of any kind?
7: Well, they don't. Um, So... (laughs) They they don't, right? So, I mean, globally, if you look at subsidies, it's a slightly more complicated picture because some of the subsidies are not in the UK, I hasten to add, but they're they're subsidies for petrol and diesel and people using their cars, and that's a more complicated picture. It is not complicated in the UK. Uh, We have principally tax benefits that work for uh, oil and gas extraction, And if I can preemptively answer your final question, the thing that we need to do is stop oil and gas extraction, and we need to stop exploring for it right now, not tomorrow, right now, uh, because we already have more than enough to deliver a 1.5 degrees centigrade rise, and that's before you strip out the coal. But the scale of what we need to do is is profound, and I agree. I agree with. Sorry, is Adrian? Fergal, sorry, Fergal, um, that th- this is a vast engineering task, which also interestingly means it's a vast employment opportunity, and um, the the trick is going to be to shift, because the, this transition is not going to be happen without justice somewhere embedded deeply within it. And there are people who are going to be put out of work by this transition because there are people in garages up and down the land whose specialism is in the internal combustion engine. There are people down the East Coast and some on the West Coast whose jobs are in oil and gas extraction. Um, you know, I could go on. There are there are plenty of other sectors where they are dependent on it. But there is a huge employment opportunity using some of the same skills, but a retraining... Um, um, program is absolutely necessary, where we can transition to doing the right things on buildings, transport, power, land, instead of doing the wrong things. And, you know, I'm profoundly sorry for all those big shareholders in the oil and gas majors who are going to lose out as a consequence of this, but I'm sorry, you're going to have to. Um, Whereas those people who are at the sort of, who are potentially on the receiving end I think society and governments need to look after,
1: right, and, 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 and we going, can I'm do that. Just one sentence answer on: they don't require the subsidy and the tax breaks. So why are we giving it to them?
7: Because there's been a history of embeddedness within uh, within government and petrochemicals and sorry fossil About just fossil a one word centers.
1: answer, Doug, rather than the sentence. Corruption? I mean, it's kind of it's uh, uh, uh,
7: corruption is a very loaded word, and I'm hesitant to use it because. Um, what it is, it's an identity of thought, right? You know, you take you take the, the, the people who are staffing bays and who are staffing, you know, quite a lot of the upper, upper echelons of the political parties. And for them, fossil fuels are just kind of, you know, they're part of the economy and you can't be nasty to those people who are such a central part of the economy. They don't need to be bribed to think that. I mean, I don't think, for example, that Trudy Harrison, a Conservative MP in West Cumbria, was bribed to support a coal mine opening, which, you know, has just been agreed. You're it's profoundly to wrong. We
1: could talk about ethical corruption as well. But that, okay, yeah, on, let's all right. let, let's move on. So Tamsin, you were itching to get in there as well.
8: Thank you. I just wanted to address the last sentence you threw in there. Um, as a climate scientist, I think the BBC are the best in the world at reporting on climate science. And I say that as someone who's worked with them for many years um consulting i've done news interviews the The last time the BBC asked me for an interview to cover climate change or air pollution was about the time I was leaving the house for this event. The time before that was I think Thursday. the time before that I think was monday um The BBC science department, who make programmes um, about climate change, there are three BBC science presenters in this room, um, work intensely hard to make sure that the evidence is accurately presented. Now, I I admit that there was a 13-year gap between specialist BBC One programmes about climate change, um, between Attenborough's 2006 programme and and the one this year. that's a slightly separate issue, and I still think the BBC would doing better than anyone else. Um, but I think we have to absolutely nip in the bud any, any idea that the BBC are not trying to cover this. I was invited on a panel recently where they had all the staff come in and learn what net zero meant. They had Chris Stark from the Committee on Climate Change and me and various other climate scientists talking about it. They are working very hard to get this right. I listen to climate stories on the Today programme every other day now. Um, you know, part of the reason I don't sleep at night is because I can't escape my job <laughs> because it's on Radio for every other program, so I think we have to be really careful about being paranoid about the
0: media in that sense mm-hmm. uh,
1: I was going to go to that gentleman there, I see you over there but let's go to this one first, the gentleman at the
0: back Yeah, very simple one, what's your take on overpopulation?
1: What's the, t- what's the take on human population? Over,
0: overpopulation Overpopulation
1: I'll overpopulation. tell you what, i um, I'm going to actually say we're not going to answer that question because we could just go way off topic here. And I could also say as a BBC science presenter, I've just made a programme about it and it'll be coming out later in the year. (laughs) Um, But let's try and stick... I know that obviously it's interrelated, um, but let's just try and stick solely to to, to the climate here. Otherwise, we could go off at a way tangent. OK.
8: Does fast fashion affect climate change and how so? And if you're on a low income, how can you make changes to stop climate change when you can't afford more sustainable fashion?
2: I'd like to just answer the first part. I'm sure people here are are, are, are far more qualified actually to answer it than me, but only because I've literally just been researching it for my own understanding of it. Um, And um, basically, fast fashion and anything that we consume or use that isn't made um, in a sort of carbon neutral way, in, in the sense that isn't made sustainably, is a way of actually outsourcing our carbon emissions to something that's called embedded emissions. So embedded emissions is this phrase that's bandied around, um, which is about the fact that um, stuff that we eat, drink, wear, wash our clothes in, uh, use as a toaster, whatever, has at some point used carbon dioxide-emitting fossil fuels um, in the manufacture of those products. And what's even worse is that a lot of those products, if they are then imported into the UK, there is huge amount of fossil fuel use and therefore carbon dioxide emissions from the import methods, which are more often than not flights. So. It sort of brings me back to the last question, which I kind of wanted to address, but it actually is part of the same thing, is that a recent report came out to show that of all the G7 countries, so of all the sort of really the big emitters, um, the UK has the highest amount of imported carbon dioxide emissions. In other words, embedded within the food, drink products that we use. So fast fashion is a particular culprit of um clothes that are made far away um, in uh, uh, ways that are releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide emissions that have to then be flown into this country and more to the point they're sold cheaply because they're not made particularly high quality therefore you have to get get rid of them buy new ones or they're made in a way that is designed for us to want to uh, to need to get rid of them because they're not high quality and designed in a way where they meet a certain fashion market and then within a few months they're out of fashion and we have to buy more so there are many reasons why fast fashion is particularly damaging and it feeds into this narrative which i hear a lot as someone who is constantly up against climate deniers or up uh, on media interviews the question i often get asked is oh but you know the uk only produces 1.5 percent of the carbon emissions globally now this is true as far as i'm aware But firstly, this is twice as much as we should be producing per head anyway, if we looked at our UK population. So it's still twice as high as it should be. Um, secondly, we've historically, we've emitted far more than our fair share because we started the industrial revolution. That's where all the carbon dioxide initially came from. But more importantly is there's uh, three other issues. One is that this imported carbon dioxide emissions are higher than for any other G7 country. And a lot of that is to do with the food we import. We import 50% of our food, 70 to 80% of our fruit and vegetables, and a lot of our fast fashion, which is not made to last. Um, secondly, fossil fuel subsidies, which we've already mentioned. Over the past five years, the UK has invested uh, £2.5 billion in subsidising fossil fuel fuels in low- to middle-income countries. Now, that doesn't get counted in our 1.5%, which are our terrestrial emissions. Nor does shipping and nor does aviation. So this 1.5% itself is complete nonsense. And finally, um, we, as a country, we emit... Uh, We are responsible for 30% of the global carbon dioxide emissions through investments in banks, from banks that have their national or international global headquarters in the city of London. That is an enormous amount. So that also brings us to the point of what we could be doing personally is looking at your fast fashion consumption, your consumption of food and drink that's imported and yes, dairy and meat is particularly problematic for separate reasons as well as the imports, but also to be looking at where you're investing your money and checking and finding out what is happening to that money, the money that you have earned, that you are investing in your future, that you're putting aside for your kids' university funds, whatever it is, could be actually being used to invest in fossil fuels, which are compounding and damaging your children's futures.
1: Thanks, Emily. Now, um, I just want to remind you, in case you've slipped your mind, the demand. Keep your demand in mind. We'll come to that shortly. Um, Darren, did you want to ask something? So just briefly to that.
4: I suppose I, one caveat is I'm, uh, this is my answer as a father of three teenage daughters rather than a uh, chief executive of a, of a nature conservation organisation. And I would really recognise the, the challenge. So, And what I'm not going to do is offer you an answer because I don't think you, sh- you need an answer from frankly a middle-aged man who's got far too much clothes in his wardrobe than he actually needs and i think one of the things that we have to do and i've got this challenge with my daughters is persuade them that they don't need every new fashion that comes out and i don't know how to do that i'd be interested in your view because you look like you have that challenge much more than i do myself but um and you don't have to give me an answer now because you uh, but i would be really interested to find out because i think like many of the, the questions that we get asked uh, today and in our everyday lives, the answers don't sit necessarily in the heads of uh, people who look like me, who've had my life. The answers are out there in a much broader context and a much wider community. And So I think my overall answer for a lot of this is we need to open up a conversation that gets to far more people because the answers are in their heads and not necessarily in mine. And if I, my panellists will forgive me, aren't theirs either.
1: Well, hold on. There's a young lady here. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's...
4: <Yeah>. Except one.
9: <laughs> um, so I'm a teenager. I come... Well, I go to a high school and I live... Well, I'm in a quite a pressurised environment where i expected to wear certain things and like certain things and do certain things. And... I think it all comes down to attitudes because it's all very well to say that we need to buy more second-hand clothes. But, yeah, as I said, I'm young um, people who buy a lot of fast, fast, fast fashion and ex- like expected to buy new things every month because what they were wearing previously is going out of fashion. Um, it's very difficult to like step out of line and not fall into that Um, fast fashion cycle so personally I try to only buy second-hand clothes now but that is still quite difficult when yes as I as I said again that we're expected to wear certain things and wear things that are in fashion at that time so we need I think we need to change attitudes because that's where the problem is right now
1: Okay, um, Stick with you, Polly. I was going to ask a question that one of the readers has sent in. It's a difficult one, so I'm sticking with you. Um, how, do you think that our reaction to high-profile figures who are flying around the world, so maybe members of the royal family, maybe some Hollywood film stars, who are at the same time beginning to champion the need to think about the environment, is fair, deserved or productive?
9: I think that lots of people look up to like Hollywood film stars and um, football members and they're the royal family as role models and they think that when I grow up I want to be like them and I want to have a private jet. And so it's really important that these people speak out about the environment because they have large followings and lots of supporters and people who admire them and hold on to their every word. And so when these people start to speak out about the environment, then I think people who follow them and support them start to listen to them. And obviously this follows on to personal choice because if um one of the royal family um, members said that I'm not going to fly in a private jet because this is bad for the environment, <coughs> it makes people um think about that and say that this is actually serious where they're prepared to not do that because this is really important.
1: Maybe they don't make that decision overnight because we all change our minds at different speeds, don't we? I was vegetarian for years and then last Christmas I suddenly thought, no, do you know what? I'm going to go vegan. It took me quite a long time to get to that point. So we do all change our mind at different paces. Should we cut them some slack? It's on their mind. They're talking about the environment. Is it worth criticising them at this point when they're talking about it? And at some stage in the future, maybe they'll think, do you know what? I'll give up the old private jet.
9: I think, well, yes, we need to um, encourage people with high profiles to s- start to speak out about the environment, but we also need to, I think, put pressure on them and say that, well, you say you care about the environment, but you're about to jet off to South Africa for a, a week or so. And I think it's quite a fine balance between being supportive of this, them speaking out and saying that this is important and we're in a Um, crisis situation but then not acting like it so yeah there is quite a fine line between those two things.
1: Okay, Good, there's a question at the back there, man's been itching.
10: Hi, Um, my question is uh, with regards to um, everyone's purporting, well not everyone but there's a lot of solutions being had from renewables uh, like solar panels and wind Um, turbines. My question is the fact that the region I come from in India is not just one of the biggest mining states in India for coal, but it's also the biggest mining state in India um, for lithium, cobalt, bauxite, all these minerals for our green technology. And it's the same in Congolese and Africa as well, which is the biggest mining state, mining country. How is any of this green when there's slave labor, there's sex slave scandals where girls and women are put into sex slave camps Um, And then they go through all these other camps as well, whatever they are. And then we're sold this product, which is supposedly green. Um, And then as I've learned from people in the industry, what do you think happens to those products at the end of life? They're actually ending up in solar panel waste mountains in Africa. Now, this is not something factored into the whole supply chain that... Um, Everyone's talking about reparations, yeah, reparations for 400 years of slavery, but what about reparations for what's already going on right now? And there's no cognition of that. And also the other thing I'd like to quickly ask is that a lot of this raw materials is required for this new technology, like 5G smart technology, which we don't need, but it's been proven to be inherently dangerous. But my key question is, is how is any of this sustainable when it's got sorry to be frank but it's got brown and black blood all over it and there's no cognition of it at all so
1: okay so there's a couple of points there let's, let's address with the, the first one which is the uh, the the movement the, the new technologies that we're evolving um maybe not perfect right we have to develop new things we go through a process in science of coming up with ideas testing them honing them perfecting them and then something better comes along. That's part of a process, isn't it?
6: It is. Um, But I think the point also makes clear that what we can't do is we develop new technologies, that we can't turn a blind eye to how they may be manufactured or how the materials might be extracted as well. Friends of Earth is an international network and we hear those stories absolutely from our sister groups across the world. None of those groups say we don't need renewables because everybody agrees that we need to have renewable energy. We need to move from fossil fuels to to renewables. But we need to uh, develop that industry in a clean, green way with decent jobs. And the inequality that is a prime... I said earlier on that that, that you you can only look after the planet if you look after people. Um, uh, And that's absolutely true here you can't have exploitative industries um, to produce something that is then given a green badge without any questions around it we need to make those products in a clean green way and we need to reduce the inequality across the world that leads to those types of circumstances happening the truth is whatever we make will have an impact somewhere so that's also another reason for saying we need to be much more efficient in what we do less of a throwaway society much more energy efficient, because while we need a lot more renewable power, uh, we can reduce the amount we need by making sure we use energy much more efficiently as well. But yeah, we can't close our eyes to some of these impacts around the world, nor should we, but we can't also at the same time deny the need for much more renewable energy
1: we maximise our energy efficiency in the UK we could meet 11% of our 2050 carbon neutral targets 11% and when you think that we've done quite a few of the easy things we've also been disingenuous about the figures as Emily's pointed out us sorting out energy efficiency is something that we should be driving to do straight away surely it's it's one of the last easy fixes Doug.
7: Yes it is and um, what we haven't done is institute the incentives and the regulation to make it happen so um you know there was a report from the labor party over the weekend saying they wanted to do i think they came up with a figure of 250 million billion sorry to insulate homes across the uk um that seems about the right sort of scale and the rules that are put in place around treasury lending, for example, make that quite difficult if you stick to the rules. But if ever there was a moment to break the rules, I think we're coming across it now. Uh, you know, it's like, um, yes, of course, civilization collapsed, but we kept the public sector borrowing requirement under control. Um, so, so there are a lot of things that can be done. I mean, you know, one of the most effective climate policies there has been, period, in the UK has been. The EU, I mean, the EU EU red tape, actually. EU standards on, on um, performance of products and appliances demanding progressive increases in efficiency across, uh, across refrigerators, across air conditioners, across even mobile phones. And that has driven energy efficiency into the marketplace, not just in the UK, but right across the EU. I do just want to pick up on the question, though, because I think it's a really important one. Um, because saying you know we're extracting all these uh all the, the the green economy of the future needs to extract all these metals in order to um deliver on the promise is it green at the moment no it absolutely is not and um you know we're actually very aware of it um so we're hoping to publish something with amnesty um probably next year now about the condition terms and conditions of Um, lithium cobalt, nickel, and other um, metals extraction, because at the moment, um, just like with the, the waste solar panels, we're expecting the same system that delivered fossil fuel subsidies, but also abandoned oil rigs in the North Sea, uh, leaking leaking oil, uh, oil wells that, that were abandoned, not to say oil spills. Are great. We're expecting the same system that produced all that to produce clean renewable energy at, all, at both ends. And it won't unless there is a much better level of oversight from those people who are looking after the public interest in doing so. Now, that presents profound problems and difficulties when you're talking about somewhere like the Congo, where government isn't what it could be, let's put it mildly. Um, but um, it doesn't mean that the transition shouldn't take place. It means that we have to be much better at it than we've been with some of the stuff we've dealt with
1: before. Okay. Emily, briefly then, we've got time for one more question. Yeah, I just want to
2: make a brief point about that as well, because we're talking about the fact that it might not be as green as it could be, and it also might well, it is uh, sort of morally reprehensible in the way that you've um, indicated. But also, we all should... <laughs> Sorry to be bearer of bad news, but we should also be aware that, for example, electric cars, which a lot of this mining is for, for lithium, for the batteries, for electric cars, that's the big new craze of, you know, if we get electric cars, then it's all going to be okay. But actually, if you actually look at the carbon emissions, and if you look at what I mentioned before about embedded carbon emissions, so the, the carbon dioxide that is released as it, uh, in the process of making those cars in the first place, if you average this out over the lifetime of a typical electric car, and compare it to a current normal petrol car actually we're still looking at kind of around 50% of the carbon emissions of a normal car so that's only a 50% reduction okay it's half but w- that's nonsense if we're putting all of our energy in this and we're k- emotional energy in it and saying okay it's going to be the future then actually it, it kind of evens itself out after uh, uh, if we've got twice as many cars then it's just the same problem as we've got at the moment so we just need to be very careful about looking at this as a sort of silver bullet plus um, people have been mentioning air pollution which is another huge impact of fossil fuel um, production as has been mentioned before 80 people every day in the UK die from air pollution we are at levels of air pollution in the UK that are actually illegal and we've been taken to court in uh, I believe in Europe for this um, as, as the UK um, and actually studies have shown that electric cars are not actually going to reduce pollutants um, uh, what so-called particulates which are the stuff that goes in the air that causes air pollution toxicity um, by very much at all, possibly only by about 30% because a lot of the air pollution from cars is actually wear and tear on tyres and uh, use of brakes and like uh, wear and tear of road surfaces so electric cars are not a magic bullet and I think as we've talked about before with kind of saying oh well you know if I recycle or I don't eat meat you know I can kind of not worry about it it's the same about electric cars if we kind of say oh well we're doing this and we've got green technologies, A we've got a huge moral issue with the people in the in the mines who are mining for lithium but also we're not actually addressing the problem nearly in fact even rem- fractionally as much as we should be
11: okay time for one last question Just the gentleman there with the hat sitting in a room and listening to all of you speak about the level of crisis that we are in um it's difficult to see how um this level of concern isn't you know consensus but um it's the reality is that it's not um, even as a young person, I'm, you know, I speak to people every day and I'm surrounded by people who don't really care about the climate issue or see about, you know, the protests and, you know, the stuff on the tube and actively, you know, have disdain for environmental groups um, like, you know, Extinction Rebellion or Greenpeace. And my question was, should we be considering a strategic change in the messaging of these groups to try and reach out a hand to those that don't agree with us, you know, to try and make it as less of a partisan issue as we can. Okay,
1: uh, Natalie, um, let's come to you. We face this problem, yes, indeed. You know, in in, um, in terms of asking people to protect wildlife, don't we? I played devil's advocate earlier and said that many people don't need a puffin; they like a puffin. I'm not so fond of a puffing myself. I think they're a bit gaudy, but let's move (laughs) over that. Um, We've got to convince a wider proportion of people to not only care, but to act. And that's a tough call, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but I think um, the the first thing is that I agree that throwing more facts at people is unlikely to achieve much more. I do think that there's something about... Empowerment. So, so you were, for example, saying, well, electric car is not helping. So, if you keep on, on removing options for people to start to engage, then slowly you're gonna not, you're gonna have no engagement. (laughs) It's a little bit the same with wildlife. What we see is that if you start to create a connection, any connection, then you can start to open the dialogue. So, it can be as silly as uh, bringing um, wildflowers in a garden, because then you start to bring back. The discussion, you start to see it, you start to act with it, you start to interact with it. I'm not saying this is the only solution by, by my, by the way. By the thing that a lot is about personal stories, personal engagement, empowerment, feeling that you can help, you can contribute. It's not someone else, somewhere else deciding about something. You can, even if it's a small role, even if it's one thing, it, it allow you to interact with the topic, to get interested into it, to learn more, to want to learn more. And in a way, um, as uh, we've been discussing before, a t- a transition and change take time and it's a path. It's not a yes or die. <laughs> it's not a do it or you'll be punished forever and so will your children, grandchildren and everything. So if you want to move people, you're going to have to accept that they all go at different pace. They do all relate to different things and we're going to need to attack it from different angles. Some people react very well to fact, Some people love the personal story. Some people need to get active into it to you get something that grabbed their attention. And I don't think we've been very good at that. Um, so, And probably because, and I would very much agree with, uh, with you before, we, we don't systematically have the diversity of people to bring the diversity of message and way to engage. And uh, we were very bad at bringing people on board, we always see the same type of people me included, <laughs> and we, we don't really have different voice different perception, different way of thinking about it, and not systematically dismiss something, even if it looks insignificant, it's okay to be insignificant sometimes <laughs> because it's a first step towards something bigger, that, that's whether it's wildlife or climate, I think it's the same it's, it's reaching out by diversifying ourselves and, and listening to people's concern, talking we we need more talking
1: Well I think that's certainly been part of our mission today we're working with the UK tabloid newspaper which has a very broad readership many of whom wouldn't normally engage with the likes of yourselves, so this is again, it's a step in the right right direction. Okay, so we've run out of time for the questions but we haven't run out of time for your demands so Darren, we'll start at that end if you had one demand what
4: would it be? one demand um okay i'll so if it was one demand i would say uh the biggest change we could do tomorrow is put a realistic price on carbon because then what it would do would it would make for uh better choices so better choices for how we manage our our land how businesses are managed how people live their lives and i think what we would also do is we would shift Directly towards that 11% energy efficiency much more quickly, and we move towards the 34% food waste the, uh, removal much more quickly. So we would end up in a scenario where we reward pe- people for doing things that lock up carbon, and we uh, re- give a realistic price for those businesses or industries that are actively emitting carbon.
1: Okay. Well, that that was three demands, but we'll let you off because <laughs> they were they were all pretty good ones, Mike.
6: So mine would be that the next Chancellor's Exchequer, who I guess we'll know in just over a month's time, uh, has 12 months to spend money on the right things rather than the wrong things, otherwise they lose their job.
1: Good, good. Holly?
9: Um, I was going to do something different until I remembered that there's a general election coming up. So I think my demand is for people in general to vote for our futures and to vote for a planet. And please don't make this a Brexit election because climate and ecological breakdown is the biggest issue we're facing today and this needs to be an election about making the difference for the environment.
1: Okay, well, you've got the first round of applause today, but I think you should have the second, (laughs) to be quite honest with you. (laughs) Natalie.
3: My demand would be that everyone set themselves an individual carbon budget. So decide how much you're okay to emit every year and then do your research to start to think as to how you would use that. And I think that would help a lot, making people realize what is direct, indirect, what can I afford, what can I do, and start to think about those trading. Peter?
7: Well, I gave you a foretaste, which is that we need to stop uh, oil exploration, oil and gas exploration and production straight away. Um, it's not just because we've already got more than enough than we can burn in terms of fossil fuels globally but as soon as a company and it usually is a company in the uk after all has got some patch of ground where it knows there's hydrocarbons they can dig out then they get a commercial interest in doing so and they I might have balked at the word corruption, but there is a distortion of the political system that comes as a direct consequence of that, as they will try very, very hard to make that happen. Uh, We see the end result of that in the the pork barrel politics you get in the US, which we haven't got to the same extent in the UK, but it is still there. So as soon as as, um, fossil fuel is identified in the ground, somebody wants to extract it.
2: So, my one demand would be that the government and the media listen to the scientists and tell the absolute truth about the climate and ecological emergency, just how bad it is and just how fast we need to act to prevent catastrophe.
8: I would ask that you don't despair. Climate change is not something that is won or lost. It's not a binary. It's not something where we do absolutely everything and everything's fine or we do nothing and everything is awful and the whole of society collapses and billions die. It will be somewhere between the two. And we have to both accept the changes that will happen in the climate and the changes that are happening in our society and know that it's a spectrum and it's a gradient and it's a block of stone that sits in front of us that we chip away at. And we have the tools to chip away at it. And we keep chipping. And every year and every six months and every three months, the predictions at the climateactiontracker.org website go down for what we think global mean temperature will be in the future. And that's because we are putting in place more and more policies. We are chipping away. So it's not won or lost. It's something that is worked on uh, probably for the rest of our lives.
1: Thank you very much. Well, that brings our panel discussion to a close. I think we've had the truth. We've had some profound truths, actually. We've had some good ideas and we've had some poignant moments. So I think we all deserve a round of applause. (laughs) APPLAUSE So we going to wrap up by handing over to the Mirror's environmental editor, uh, Nada Fahoud, who's going to wrap things up. I uh,
12: just want to say firstly, a big thank you to our panel for joining us today. I know you've got very busy schedules and to Chris for um, taking time out to chair it today. Uh, there have been many, many great points that have been raised today. And uh, what we're going to do is take them all away, summarise them for next week for our green edition. And then we are going to, come up with a list of five demands that we're going to put pressure on the december 12th election and the new uh, government that forms further beyond for proper environmental change some some of the points that were raised that we've heard today are you know from stopping the expansion at heathrow airport um a people's assembly that maybe some of our readers could um participate in um that all our lifestyles must change um, in a line for what we're calling for politically, and they start at very small changes to big changes from you know giving up flying. Um, but whatever, it's, it's crystal clear from all our panellists here today that the climate change is not a future threat, it's happening now, and it's a real threat. And I just wanted to leave you with one final thought. Over the summer, I travelled to Greenland for a special climate change edition for the Daily Mirror. And this was to explain to our readers why climate change is a matter for them to take to to heart. Here I found a community battling with its new reality. As countries are struggling to limit their 1.5 degree warming um, to... um, I found... (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. As as countries struggle to limit overall warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, Arctic residents here are already experiencing... Uh, temperature rises way higher than this in less than one generation. After Europe baked in record temperature heat waves in August, this most northerly town in Greenland is experiencing 22 degrees, resulting in record ice melt. I found kids swimming in the sea, locals wearing T-shirts, that 10 years ago it was unheard of in August. Hunters are now working in... uh, supermarkets, families are struggling to afford to eat, houses are being pulled down, and so this is the effects of the climate change that is happening now. I'm telling you this story because on this trip that I realised the effects of global warming are simply not equal. What is happening here, what we're pushing out with fossil fuels, is having a devastating impact thousands of miles away on a community that can't control. Um, and so why it's important for us to, at the Mirror to keep explaining to our readers and with all your help and your help here today, that the climate change is everybody's issue and this is why we need to be engaged to make these changes. So big thank you for the audience for um, participating today as well. Um, to you guys. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to part two of the Climate Crisis Panel. You can follow the coverage of our climate issue on social media by searching hashtag MirrorClimateCrisis.